Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to Episode 9, Beating Anorexia, and Choosing Life with our special guest, Transformation Coach, Angela Howell. Angela has long been on the road to personal freedom. She survived an early life of chaos, which led to a lengthy battle with anorexia and bulimia. She spent a total of 24 weeks inpatient over seven years amidst three separate hospitalizations. Angela credits a team of healthcare professionals plus 12-step recovery for saving her life, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. She sees her eating disorder and recovery path as a huge gift, the beginning of a complete life and spiritual transformation so desperately needed. Angela shares her compelling story of triumph to spread a message of hope because she still remembers what it was like not to have any. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Transformation Coach Angela Howell. Welcome, Angela. Hi, Moira. So great to be with you today. I appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, I think your story is wonderful and you're going to uh, reach a lot of people who really need to hear um, a message of hope, whatever their their challenges are today, let it be physically, mentally, emotionally, um, to just know there's hope there. That's a, a big thing to share. So it's it's going to be wonderful, inspirational, empowering, and your real life story. So yes, Angela, well, yes. Yeah. So Angela, you, you had a successful career in the corporate world for many years, and then you went into burnout. How, how did this turn you onto a new direction, a new path, a new journey to begin to discover who you truly are? Well, I had pursued money from an early age, just growing up um, poor, really poor, and and insecure. And I figured that it seemed like from my very young perspective that money would be the answer to all my problems. So I pursued my corporate path, completely disregarding any gifts or talents or any purpose that I have, I may have been put here to do. Mm-hmm. My sole focus was money, but also self-worth recognition. So I set out to be the very best salesperson I could be. And somewhere in that I got to where I I struggled to do the activity level that I was used to doing to be the best. And I managed to, to be the best, but it took more and more and more out of me to, to do the, the level of activity required for that to happen. And I began to feel like, I don't know what life is supposed to be, but somehow I'm missing it. You know, I, I'm married. Um, I love my husband and we've built a home in our twenties and I have, you know, a really nice car and great job and winning trips and winning awards, salesperson year, year after year. And yet I'm so unhappy. And so, um, I just began to get the feeling that I was supposed to be doing something else, but 
I had never considered that. And actually when 9-11 happened here in the U.S., I had a five-year-old son and it woke me up. And for a couple of years, I, so I, I retired. I was early 30s and I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. I had never wanted that before. But then my life circumstances changed about two years into that. And rather than figure out what I was really supposed to do, I went back to what I knew and how to make a lot of money in sales. And within just a couple of months, my body started to break down and I had all sorts of neck pain, shoulder pain and that sort of thing. And that's the time where I like to think that the first opportunity to leave corporate world and find what I'm supposed to be here was a gentle one. And then the second one was a more firm, you're not going to do sales anymore kind of mm-hmm. push. And so I sat about um, writing. I remember sitting down one day and writing lots of questions. What am I good at? What do people say I'm good at? What do I enjoy doing? Because sometimes what you're good at doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to do because you may not enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So it was just uh, that really launched exploration of who, who is Angela? What is she good at and why is she here? And what did you discover? What were the first things that came out of that asking those questions? Because asking questions, it, it does open up us to opportunities and possibilities and asking the right questions. So what did what came out of that? What were the first things that you learned that you're really great at or what you were passionate about? I need to dig that list up because it's, it's really, <laughs> excuse me, it's humorous. Uh, because it, what unfolded was nothing on the list except for I knew that I was a good speaker. I had been sharing my eating disorder recovery story, gosh, for years, um, since 1994, probably, and then in another uh, higher level capacity since 2007 for an organization here in Tennessee. But other than that, um, I don't don't even know what I put on the list, but the first thing that happened was I became a, a photographer accidentally. I had always loved taking pictures, but I never had willing subjects. My husband and son hate having their photo made. (laughs) And here in Nashville with lots of musicians, I had a friend lamenting one day about the agony of getting, you know, pictures made for her new CD. And I said, why don't we split the cost of film, which tells you how long ago that was and just go play, (laughs) you know, and we'll play. And if you don't get anything good, then, then go hire a real photographer. And that day, was amazing for me. We got amazing pictures of her. She couldn't believe it. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, this is what people mean when they say you do what you love and you can get paid for it. Mm -hmm. And so that acts, she told, she immediately told another musician. And I think I charged that person $40, Mm -hmm. (laughs) something ridiculously low, um, which probably just covered film, but that that's how that launched. But I think what you said earlier, when you ask the questions, you may not get the answers you thought you were going to get, but you start, you start things in motion. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really cool way that that happens. Well, you and I are both on the same page, which is very cool that we are that, you know, you have what is the gift. And I also have my book coming out. What is the gift and what is the gift to this either way? and been saying that to my clients for years, because as we're going to discuss today, and as this unfolds, our heartfelt discussion and having fun, Angela, that 
you know, there's a gift in everything when you really look at it, even in the hardest times, there's something there for us to learn and grow from instead of saving in our safety zone and comfort zone. That's not what expansion's about and the universe loves expansion. So let's, let's jump in here about your powerful story, your family and being part of a traveling Christian ministry and how this impacted your overall health and well-being, because I find it very fascinating, your personal story here. Oh, thank you. There's when people ask me to share my story, I always clarify, well, what part did you want to hear? Because there's, <laughs> there's so many chapters. The, yes. the traveling ministry chapter, I was a, age five to age eight. And it was really like being in, I, I, I've never been in a carnival or a circus, but I would imagine it's kind of the same where we lived in mobile homes and campers and renovated school buses and and we traveled in massive caravans of semis, you know, when we went to a new city. And then the big day was pitching the big tent where all the revivals would happen. And it, you know, it was this huge, glorious tent. And so those years for me were adventurous. Um, we did a lot of witnessing on the streets, which was really interesting. Some of that, the city I remember most was Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, just, just really adventurous. I didn't know any different. So, so it's not mm. like I knew my life was met that much different. I mean, the other kids in the ministry had the same life I had. So I didn't have any friends that weren't in the ministry. I, I didn't know anything different. Um, it really was like being in a hippie commune because this was the early 70s. And, and we, we were, everybody was part of one big family. So meals were one big event together. We were homeschooled in the back of a semi. Um, you know, I don't know what else to share. I know people find that's fascinating. And I'd love to answer any other questions that come up for you about that. But the, the main takeaway, if there was a negative is the lack of closeness with family because uh, my dad was handling music-related ministry stuff, and um, my mom was busy. And it's almost like it's almost like somebody was assigned to handle all the kids. Mm -hmm. So, like I remember a lady named Linda, and I spent more time with Linda probably than my own family. Mm -hmm. But but you know, so that's kind of how it was. It's being raised in a community. Mm -hmm. I'd, I've never really heard about a traveling Christian ministry in Canada. So that's why I also found it interesting. What happened then at the age of eight? Did you leave that, that group in that way of being and then move into a home or what was that like? And what did that look like? Yes. When I was eight, my father and mother decided to leave the ministry and we uh, got a home and my father, uh, my parents were not getting along. And so that resulted in a divorce, pretty, pretty ugly and traumatic divorce. And we ended up, my mother and two brothers, going to live with an uncle temporarily in Oklahoma. And then we, we my mother got us our own home. And we were there for about three years, three or four years. And so that was sort of regular life, except now I'm a single, in a single parent home you know, but, but going to a regular school. Mm -hmm. So your, your 10 year battle with, thank you, with anorexia and bulimia and three separate hospitalization. 
when did that start? How old were you when that started? And how did you recognize it and know what that is? So people who, you know, not too sure, you know, if they might have it. Yes. Uh, at the time, back in the, that would be probably late 70s, early 80s, the, the eating disorder awareness isn't anything like what it is today. Mm-hmm. So I had never heard of an eating disorder, but the, the trauma in the divorce and some other chaos that surrounded that time um, really changed me from, you know, a child to a very fearful person and a very introverted person. And I guess maybe, maybe coming out of a community environment, coming into, you know, a, a different environment, I just had immense insecurity mm-hmm. and just, just in that whole shift and losing my father, uh, you know, being part of my life. I, you know, I was this little princess. My mom, you know, really had a thing with the boys. And so that, you know, kind of losing my, my champion in the home and, mm-hmm. and not having him around um, all of that together, mm-hmm. I think contributed to just being very, uh, insecure and scared of the world, you know, again, all, all the stuff that had happened to, and I became obsessed with being thin. So the background for that is my dad was a professional athlete. And so he was always focused on fitness and his, I mean, his body, um, up until we joined the ministry, he played professional baseball and my mother was a tall, beautiful teacher. You know, she'd been in pageants. So both of them were very body conscious and always on diets, but always breaking diets and always exercising. And so I think that was just the natural transition for me. And, you know, when someone develops an eating disorder, usually it's from a lack of control. And so, you know, in hindsight, I can say that there was, I had, there was so much that was out of control in my world that I began to focus on being thin. That was how I was going to get my parents' approval, the Mm -hmm. world's approval. And, and then being very poor, I remember one time when I was nine, my mother taking us to McDonald's and saying she would treat us to ice cream, you know, after our Happy Meals or whatever, and, and me declining because I was full. And she went on and on and on about my willpower. And I didn't know what willpower was, but I, I knew that it felt really awesome to have my mom think I was great. And that anchored you know, in my mind, ah, if I don't eat or if I restrict or if I, you know, don't participate in, in indulging in food, I get favorable attention from my mom. So that, that sort of planted another seed. Mm-hmm. And I remember making a list at nine years old, the top 10 things I wanted most in the world. And the first one was to be thin. Um, I think the second one was to have my parents back together. And the third one was to be less of a bother. So I really started developing this feeling that I was a bother to people and all of that kind of works together to, to take someone into their own world where, because all of that is so painful, it's so much easier and nicer to focus on fitness. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, but again, this is a nine-year-old that's pretty young to start becoming obsessed with body, but unfortunately that's what, that's when people start happening. I remember when my own son was around eight or nine and him coming home from elementary school and saying, mom, am I fat? 
I'm like, no, why, why do you say that? And him telling me, well, some boy said that my belly was chubby. And, you know, he had a little bit of a round belly. And I patted that. And I'm like, are you kidding? This belly, this belly is perfect. You've worked so hard to have a belly that's this wonderful. No, you are perfect. You know, and, and reassured him. But that's when kids start noticing each other's bodies and, and talking about that. And so um, that battle with having the perfect body continued until 13. And, and this is kind of a horrifying part of my story, but it's just is what it is. Um, I used to love to eat to, to soothe, you know, that was kind of a way to medicate. A lot of people eat, you know, for emotional reasons. And by then my dad had remarried and my stepmother and I had baked cookies and ate a lot of cookies. And I mentioned that I wish that I could throw them up. And for whatever reason, she gave me Epicac, um, which is a poison control substance. And that, that did the job and I never wow. needed that again. I just needed the, I just needed the idea. And, um, I'm, I, I'm sorry that I said the name of that because I don't like to plant seeds for people. Um, no, I think, I, share. Th I think people would find it too, but I understand what you're saying. Okay. Um, but yeah, when I share with high schoolers and middle schoolers, I don't, Mm -hmm. uh, I try really, I'm really careful what I say because I, I don't want to give any more information than I have to to mm -hmm. share my story, but binging and purging and as well as starving is part of my story. And that's what launched, that's what planted the seed. I, I never thought about that, but that, that, that showed me I can do all of this and then get rid of the calories. And so I kind of did a cycle of starvation, compulsive over exercising for two or three hours, lots of running and binging and purging and, and purging I also found was a way to to express rage mm -hmm. second the second time I did it was definitely a way for me to to rage it was a way to scream and yet nobody hear me mm -hmm. that's very interesting I haven't heard that before so that's very very interesting so your whole worthiness was tied into this and and, and I assume that your stepmother thought she was doing a good thing back then um but wow, that's amazing. So how did you start to grow your worthiness? And when did you start exploring new ways of being? So you're not identified by your weight. You know, um, I'm very much a person about diversity and it's not about ability, disability, color, race, gender. I, I see, well, that's part of the show. It's about coming together, you know, to raise the consciousness for people who are unconscious for the greater good of humanity and their planet and for us to connect with other people to consciously create uh, our best lives so what did, what were some of your best practices that you started to put together and was that years that that happened or how how did that unfold i really have to give credit to the eating disorder although it was an incredibly trying season of my life mm -hmm. it put me on a path of of personal development and growth and all the seeking that that you're you're describing uh, my first hospitalization was at 17. I'd, I'd heard that a former, you know, best friend at another school was in the hospital. And I, I asked why, and I got this word anorexia and I'd never heard of it. And when I looked it up, I just, just like, oh my gosh, this, I, this is me. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt immense relief because I carried so much shame that I did all this weird stuff secretly with food. Nobody knew nobody, not even my best friends, nobody. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my mother was able to get me in the, in this program. And, and that first hospitalization was three months long. And 
I learned that that was the start of digging into some of the family stuff, some of the trauma and learning how to unpack. I think before you figure out who you really are, you almost have to unpack who you are not, who you have believed that you are, that is a lie. And so uh, there's, there's a great quote, but I'm not going to be able to say it, but, but, but one of the little things, it's, maybe it's not about you know, being something new, but, but unbecoming all the things that, that weren't you, something like that. So uh, that eating disorder treatment system, it planted a seed, it, it, it started the process, but an eating disorder, the average time frame for someone to come out of an eating disorder, which by the way, anorexia is the number one cause of death for all psychological conditions or psychological psychiatric conditions. I'm not exactly sure how that's quoted, Mm -hmm. which is shocking to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think people realize how prevalent it is and how difficult it is. Once that takes hold, it is a mental illness that, that is vicious and difficult to break out of. And so, but the average person, once they start trying to get better, the average person, it'll take them seven years to finally beat it. Seven years. Seven years. And so my first hospitalization was at age 17. And my last one was right before I turned 24. So I am right on that seven-year average mark. My second hospitalization was at 22. I was there for two months. And that one, I was, I was in really bad physical health because of the, the, the ramifications of what I was doing to my body without getting too graphic. Mm-hmm. And I was given an ultimatum by a therapist that I had to check myself in somewhere or she would check me in somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I found this wonderful, sunny uh, place in Florida and I thought, this will be great. I'll get to run on the beach. I mean, I, I really went there to not die, but I did not go there to live, which is a huge distinction and, and a, a, huge, a huge thing that we'd have to bring to anything, anything that we're trying to do. It can't be to not do something. It has to be for, for the positive. And so that didn't work out. I came home and immediately relapsed and it was another year of fighting and struggling. And then I went to my last treatment center. I'd gotten married and I thought I'd, I really want to transition to my new life. And, and I went to that one because I wanted to live mm-hmm. and, and that one worked. And why did it work? Because my mind was in the right place. And so all of this collectively added to, you know, to, to try to answer you, your questions about my journey is to get, get free of that, you know, that thing. But unfortunately I transitioned into workaholism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now fast forward to the part of the story we've already talked about where, you know, that led to burnout and, you know, now my body's breaking down and I'm having to ask myself what I'm really here for. So the path was, you know, identifying what I'm good at, what I like, what I enjoy and, and then just starting somewhere. Um, and of course, my path includes lots of books and webinars and um, audio tapes. And as a salesperson, that also contributed to a lot of my personal growth, you know, mastering your mind and, you know, think and grow rich and some of the historical uh, books on, on 
you know, becoming your best self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely beliefs and mindset, self-talk, you know, that all plays into living a really our best lives. And so that definitely our beliefs, because we're not even, that's just the thing about being conscious or unconscious. There's lots of times we go through just every day and we're going through the movement with no emotion. We're just going through the motion and not Auto even pilot. Yes. And not even really aware of what we're doing. So this led to your spiritual victory, beating anorexia. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, the third, the third hospitalization was the final one that was 1992. And I think it's safe to say when you have an eating disorder, I don't know anyone who is ever completely healed as if it never happened before. I think we all have um, a bend toward a certain thing. So when I go through a stressful time, then I can see the tendency to get distracted and it's two o'clock. I forgot to eat lunch. Mm -hmm. You know, I can see that or the opposite of I'm stressed. I'm bored. I'm restless. I'm fearful. Where's the chocolate? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I can still see those tendencies. It's just, they, that's the difference. I'll get asked a lot. Well, how do you know if you have an eating disorder? Because I emotionally eat sometimes and, and, or I might skip a meal. We all do. The difference is when it has crossed a line and you are no longer in control. Mm-hmm. That's when you have slipped from, you know, kind of a bad habit or, you know, kind of what a lot of people do into, you know, this has become a mental disease. I'm, I'm out of control. I can't make myself stop doing this. That's when you know you've really got a problem. And then, of course, there's that slippery slope in between the two. So, Angel, you, you mentioned you, you have to be aware, so you're very conscious if something comes up for you, if you're stressful or feeling anxious or in, in a state. A lot of people are in the state of, you know, right today, they're in a state of fear and not knowing what's going to show up in our lives versus being very present in the present moment. And so what is your relationship to food today? Um, it's about what I described. I, I have gone from early recovery days of having a very rigid program where, you know, I had a whole team of wellness people, you know, doctor, psychiatrist, psych- uh, therapist, a nutritionist, and my food plan, I didn't know how to eat. I had been eating so bad and so wrong or not eating for so long. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't know what was normal. I didn't know what a portion size was normal. So it was about, you know, being educated to, uh, okay, so for breakfast, you're going to have, you know, two carbs and a protein, you know, and pick. And of course they defined what, what, what was, you know, which one was what, you know, what was a carb? I mean, I, you know, back then we didn't talk carbs now, now that's an everyday language kind of thing. But, um, at some point in that path, probably 15 years down the road, I had been doing that long enough that I was able to, I felt like if I'm truly in recovery, then my relationship with food should be more normal. I, and so I embarked on a path called intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like what you were talking about before or just then about tuning in and being self-aware And so intuitive eating is about eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. Now, I don't always do that perfectly because if something's really tasting good, 
I might still get over full. Um, and there may be times where I'm still struggling with, you know, um, workaholism and I really, really, really want to keep working and I'll, you know, go too long or I'll get a snack as opposed to a meal. So my plan, you know, isn't perfect, but I have been able to maintain the same weight within usually within five pounds, five to seven pounds since 1992. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I kind of like a bear. I gain a little bit extra in the winter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I have my little, little extra warmth and then it just sort of naturally falls off in the spring. And I, I do not diet. I diets to me are lethal. The minute I start trying to control my weight, Um, for, for some sort of aesthetic reason or for some number on a scale or for some number inside my pants, I'm going to have a problem that is going to trigger my eating disorder, uh, disease. You know, it just, it's just, so I don't diet and uh, I I just very, for me, it doesn't work. Well, I also think that word in there again, die. (laughs) Yes. It's not good versus I like nutritional eating and you know, healthy, all those words are, are, I think, a lot better. Yeah, but the biggest thing I want to say is, is in recovering from an eating disorder, usually someone has really, really bad uh, or negative self body image. Mm-hmm. And so that is a critical part. And I think even, even women that don't have an eating disorder, we, our culture sets us up to have such a poor self body image. And so a lot of the work that I've done um, personally has been viewing my body as a wonderful, you know, sophisticated group of systems that lets me do so much. And the, the outer shell that you all see is a fraction of who I am, who Angela is. And before like I think you mentioned, my worth stemmed from how I looked. I grew up believing that my number one worth was my external appearance. And that's just, uh, it's shallow, but it's tragic because it doesn't emphasize the gifts I I was born with, the Mm -hmm. talents. Well, I think, think too, you know, through the years, I don't think people do, everyone does it now, but when people you know, say, what do you do versus who are you? Or what do you Mm. value? Again, back to those Mm. questions, because what do you do? You know, you can add in there, I believe in being of service in the world. And what am I here to do my purpose? So it's a higher spiritual level. Not that I'm higher spiritually. It's just that's how I I look at it. And, And each one of us has a unique life purpose and our unique passions. You, you went to a program that you attended for a woman. You, you shared this with me when we first talked. And you, you had this mirror exercise, and I think it was naked. <laughs> and I thought that yes. would be a, a, a neat thing to share with people because a lot of people can't, you know, look at themselves. I know I think I shared with you, Louise Hayes had one that you looked in the mirror through your eyes, the soul of who you are, and say, I love you. I love you. Mm-hmm. And I, even there, people have, a lot of people have a problem with that because it starts with self-love, you know, self life mastery to me starts with self-love because if you can't love yourself and take care of your own energy and your healthy boundaries and that you can't be there to be of service for other people, unless you're going to burn out and be there from that standpoint. So tell us about this mirror exercise, make it. 
<laughs> oh, goodness, you're right. It is so awkward when we confront ourselves in the mirror to, to do an exercise like what you mentioned, you know, to read, just to look at ourselves in the mirror and, and say affirmations or say, I love you and, and to really see ourselves. And so the mirror exercise is completely naked to stand in front of the mirror and start coming up with attributes that are non-physical. And so that's pretty difficult when you're staring at yourself in the mirror naked and all you can see is the physical. Mm -hmm. but, but instead, you want to look into your eyes and come up with, you know, uh, you, are, you are thoughtful, you are um, a gifted photographer, you are, you know, but then, then it does progress to... Um, your arms are so good at carrying things and, and helping you see your body for what it, how it serves you as opposed to staying stuck on how it all looks. And so it's a powerful, powerful exercise to start to get past the appearance of our body and get into more who we are as our spirit and also the how our body serves why we're here. I agree. And the other thing is with, um, I know when I do my meditation and prayer ritual every day, I very much, you know, I see my healthy organs, healthy blood, healthy bones, healthy muscles, mm -hmm. and how, healthy skin, and how our body is doing all that for us every day. And not to take that for granted, this is our life. And I believe that the universe works through us for the highest if we ask to be an instrument of love, compassion, peace, you know, whatever those values are for you. And then you're guided every day into, you know, the people you meet, what you're doing, and you're coming from inspiration, which I love means in spirit. I like plays and words. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I love words too. Yes, that's beautiful. That's, that's perfect. I love everything about that. Now you have a model, you say ordinary life, extraordinary perspective. Can you expand on that one? Sure. So as my body was breaking down, in 2005 and it was becoming evident that I couldn't do my you know award-winning sales career anymore you know life was pretty challenging and and physically I was struggling I was in an incredible pain every day and limited uh, even brushing my teeth was very difficult and painful and not to mention anything else and at the same time I started seeing lessons life lessons or spiritual lessons in the most ordinary things, you know, things that I looked at or done or seen, you know, uh, many times before, but on that particular day, they're held a lesson. So um, one of the ones I remember seeing was, you know, I take a walk and I, I kind of get curious about neighbor's trash. And I remember seeing this box and it was this, this bike like contraption that where you would hook a bike onto another bike the second bike had the steering wheel and had the pedals, but it was lifted in such a way that it was really just an attachment, you know, for probably a child to, to be on and to have the illusion that he's steering and he's pedaling, but really the parent is doing all the work. And, you know, rather than just passing by the trash, well, that's what the tra you know, well, that's what they bought. It just was like, you know, what if, what if that's, us and we're in that back thing we have the illusion that we're steering we have the illusion that we're pedaling you know but 
but what if God is on the real bike and life is as simple as sitting back and enjoying the ride? And so I get this whole download of that because I've, I've also, you know, still struggle with control issues and, and how futile would it be? So I'm hard headed and it's really great when I have a visual. So in a, in a, in a bike setup like that, how futile is it for the person on the back bike to try to steer and to oversteer and to steer harder? It's not going to help. Um, or to, or to, you know, pedal backwards. It's not going to matter. And so anyway, that one just, uh, that was just one example, or, or I might get an example in the, you know, by looking at the clouds or, you know, I have cats and so and my cats have taught me a lot of things. And so that's what I mean by ordinary life, just regular everyday things. And yet extraordinary perspective because we are mindful enough to take notice of what's going on, you know, in us and around us. Yes. And I think mindfulness and also um, being in gratitude every day. I know lots of people talk about gratitude journals and that, but I think it's, it's so important to be in that vibration of thankfulness and enjoy and peace and choose that feeling. And when other feelings come up, which again, a lot of people are experience fear and racism today and all those generational things that are coming up, it's there for us to definitely listen and definitely be the voice of our planet and each other healing, but come from a place of love. And I think love is the highest vibration and that's, and to be in that state. And as we do that, others can give themselves permission to also do that. Yes, I, I totally agree. You, you have to know where you are and then decide if that's where you want to be. And, and, and gratitude that kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier for like a question, you know, I've been through quite a few different traumas, you know, even, even into my forties. And that has just been part of my experience, which I feel makes me relatable because they're in different categories. And so, you know, I feel like I'm alive to share hope with people. And when someone comes up and they share a struggle, um, I've experienced a lot of, a lot of major struggles that people and traumas that people have experienced. And I can, I can understand that from a first hand perspective, but um, I loved, so I said all that because it's been very easy for me to flip over to sort of a victim mentality, you know, and, and that's the opposite of, of gratefulness. That's, that's a different spirit. And so I love when I catch myself to, you know, my book is called finding the gift and it's about what is the gift in this? And I know that's your phrase too, but mm -hmm. But, but asking not why did this happen to me or why is this happening to me, but why did I survive that? Or how is this going to help me get to the next level of my personal evolution? You know, to look for the positive in it. And that, that's just another way to practice gratitude because we can, we can stay stuck in, you know, this situation really stinks. Um, I wish this wasn't happening or I wish what happened to me 10 years ago had not happened, but that doesn't help. That doesn't add anything, you know, to, to move us forward. Um, I really much prefer, you know, the gratitude uh, approach for, you know, how is this helping me? Um, and, and then if we're really struggling, can we at least ask, how could this be worse? What am I being spared here? Mm -hmm. 
I used to um, speak on cruise lines for years, Angela, and one of the things I had people get up, and they always loved it, was to do the Attitude of Gratitude dance. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, we used to just get up and do the Attitude of Gratitude dance, and it just changes your whole energy field. So you talk about Dare to Dream, which is in part of your, your 10 secrets to finding the gift. This just share with me right now one real gem of wisdom or nugget of wisdom for people today with all the anxiousness going on and the change that we're having in our world, how do people begin to dare to dream again? You know, and that, that goes back to, I think our culture, we are, we are taught to play it safe, to stay Mm -hmm. comfortable and to, to, you know, color inside the box. And so much of us are, are not encouraged to dream. And, and this I think is passed down generationally where if, if a child or a teenager decides they're going to do something that to their parents sounds crazy, you know, we discourage, we discourage the dreamers. We, we want them, you know, for our own, for our own security, we want, you know, our family members and loved ones to stay safe. And so, you know, I really believe that, that dreaming and allowing ourselves to imagine, you know, I, I have a coaching program you know, called A Life Worth Having. And I used a lot of the things that I used on myself, you know, like a snippet from this book or a, or a piece or a suggestion from this webinar, put it all together. And, and I love helping people who come to me. Some know what they want to do or they have an idea, but they don't know how to execute but I really love it when I find someone who was like me that, that I have no idea what my dream would be. I mean, I know that I can't keep doing sales, but I have no idea what I'm here for. And so um, there's, there's, you know, I like to have an exercise about, you know, called five alternate dream lives where we really play make believe. We take off all the social limits, all the economic limits basically remove everything. And if you could make believe what are five different dream lives that you would like to step into, it's just, it's almost, it's a tool. Intuition is a tool. Empathy is a tool. Dreaming is a tool. And many people are very, very rusty at it. And so I love to play that game of make believe with people to help people start to allow themselves to dream again because we, we many of us have this built-in sensor that squashes everything that sounds ridiculous or risky. And I think right now in these times of uncertainty, one of my messages is that this is a time you can really get clear. Are you enjoying your work or maybe you're being a gift that you can't go to work and you're, you start learning another path, another a language, a skill, start a podcast, you know, whatever that is. And to explore that. And with what you're saying, I love Albert Einstein's, that imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And the whole idea of imagining, because when you imagine, you do go into that playful realm and not put any stops or obstacles there, but get into that feeling and see what that feels and go to the end result of things you want. And if you don't know, just start playing with it. You don't have to know it all. Um, I always say, leave the hell to the universe, but be clear because become crystal clear on what you want because when you don't know what you want, you're sort of going down different paths, which is fine. But if you really want to get crystal clear and see the end result, and then you allow the steps to show up and there's miracles every day in our life. If we open our eyes to them, Angela, totally. Yes. 
Angela, can you share with us the gift you'd like to give to our listeners today? And all the links will be below this episode. Um, yes, I have a short ebook called 10 Secrets to Finding the Gift. And you can get that by going to my website and um, you'll see a little pop-up that says subscribe. So I have a weekly meditation that I send out on early uh, Tuesday mornings. And then that signs you up for that, but it also will automatically send you the free ebook. And of course you can unsubscribe at any time. Uh, but that's what I'd love to give you. It's just 10 short ways to find the gift in everyday life. And, you know, for me, finding the gift is two things. It's about helping people become more aware and be mindful, but it's also about helping them see the gift in situations that feel like anything but a gift. So um, this addresses just, just 10 secrets that I practice myself of how to be, um, how to increase my well-being with no matter, regardless of what is going on in my life right now. Mm -hmm. We are definitely on the same page with that. And thank you so much. And Angela, thank you for sharing your journey from your heart and soul today and your wisdom on living your best life, beating anorexia and really choosing life. So thank you. Namaste. Oh, namaste. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.